0: Okay, today is August the 9th, 2011. I can't think of any announcements other than we need to continue to pray for rain. This is the worst drought I can ever remember. Yeah, that's what I heard, that A&M did some kind of survey, some type of analysis said it hadn't had one like this since the 1880s, It's a long time ago. So, uh, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, the option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for another day of your grace. We thank you for the opportunity to be here to feed upon your word. We know that we can rely on you to provide for all of our needs. You know how desperately we need rain, so we pray that you will uh, grant that to us and that in the meantime you'll give us the strength and grace to endure along with all the other exigencies that we face, that we will apply doctrine, faith, rest, and depend upon your mighty grace that is always sufficient. We pray that you will help us to focus this evening, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I got an email. I thought it was pretty neat. It's fairly short. Teenage boy had just passed his driving test and inquired of his father as to when they could discuss his use of the car. His father said, He'd make a deal with his son. You bring up your grades from a C to a B average, study your Bible, and get your hair cut. Then we'll talk about the car. The boy thought about it for a moment, decided he'll settle for the offer, and they agreed upon it. After about six weeks, the father said, Son, you brought your grades up, and observed that you have been studying your Bible, but I'm disappointed in that you haven't cut your hair. And the boy said, you know, Dad, I've been thinking about that, and I've noticed in my studies of the Bible that Samson had long hair, John the Baptist had long hair, Moses had long hair. There's even evidence that Jesus had long hair. And the dad replied, are you ready for this? (laughs) Did you notice they also walked everywhere they went? (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was worth passing on. Uh, I thought I'd touch on one thing shortly, uh, just for a moment. I told you that Sunday that we have to use discernment in everything that we do. And what occurred in Houston Saturday, the... Uh, prayer day was something that appears to be a right thing done in the wrong way. And I have heard and seen different comments since then. And I just wanted to reiterate again that we do not align ourselves and unite with false teachers, even if it's far at a function that is legitimate, even if it's good. We do not unite with them, and I'm going to give you a few scriptures to underscore that. I gave you a couple Sunday, but I thought I'd give you a couple more uh, this evening. Second Corinthians chapter six, verse fourteen. In fact, I have these on the screen for you. Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Uh, I guess one of the things that spurred some of this commentary is an email that was put out and sent to I don't know how many people by Joel Rosenberg that he was going to participate in this day of prayer, and he was. I thought he did an excellent job of describing the perilous times that we live in, but most of the theologically sound pastors and people that I know recognize that this is not, what he did was make a wrong uh, choice in going because even by his own acknowledgement, there were people there who were theologically off base. You could even say that they bordered on being cults. And he said, but there were a lot of other <clears throat> people, there were a lot of other evangelicals that were there that were biblically sound. And so he kind of balanced it out and went anyway. And I'm here to say that if you go to any function that you are seen with either cult people are people who are doctrinally off base, then you're going to be identified with those people. And you, you don't do a right thing in the wrong way by thinking that it doesn't matter because it does matter. And these scriptures here are going to underscore that. The second one is Second John chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Watch yourselves that you may not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. What does that tell us already? We have to endure to the end because you can. what, what we have accomplished, uh, this is the Apostle John explaining that the apostles did accomplish something in the lives of these believers. They were on track to get rewards and decorations and crowns, and he is warning them. He is admonishing them here. Don't lose what we have accomplished, but that you'll receive a full reward. Don't lose out on your rewards, verse 9. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide by the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. I could do a lot more exegetical work on this, but I'm, I'm not for time reasons. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house, Do not give him a greeting for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. So if you're talking to someone who does not agree with and goes against sound doctrinal teaching, John says don't even give him a greeting, don't even let him into your house. So if that's the case, certainly you would not want to participate in or to be seen with false teachers, people who have rejected God's Word because you will be identified with <clears> them. <throat> Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6 through 16. Verse 11 is the pivotal verse, but I have enough these other verses to keep it in context. Verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Do you, do you understand what this is saying? Because people are deceived by empty words, God's wrath goes upon these sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly in darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Isn't that what we're doing here? We're trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. We're trying to learn how to walk in lightness, in light and in righteousness and truth. Now, here's the pivotal verse, verse 11. And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Now, when you expose these people who are in darkness but claim to be ministers of light, you can expect to get a lot of flack. Dave Hunt with the Berean Call and Tom, what's his last name, McCann? uh, McMahon, Tom McMahon. uh, Both of them get attacked every week because they are very... uh, adapt at exposing those who are in darkness and people don't like to be exposed and they get accused of being unloving, being <clears throat> divisive, everything under the sun. But this says don't, don't participate with them. Don't go to a day of prayer. Don't participate in that if there are those who are in darkness and I'm telling you this NAR, Nash, what is it, the uh, Na- National uh, Apostolic Revival, or I can't remember exactly what it is, IHOP, International House of Prayer, uh, Kansas City Prophets, God's Sons Manifested. All of these are organizations that, that really organized this and funded it. And all of these, the ones that I'm talking about are... I don't even know if they're believers, but they're certainly uh, not dispensational. They are not. uh, Their eschatology is completely skewed. And um, they're probably into lordship, salvation, and all these other things. For it is disgraceful even to speak of things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, Awake, sleeper. He's telling these people, like I would say, Joel Rosenberg, and I I have nothing to, I'm not trying to disparage him. I'm just saying that he made a mistake in judgment. He did not uh, refuse to participate and he did not expose him. He became part of it. So he says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead. This is from... Not necessarily spiritual death, but operational death. Believers who aren't learning doctrine, they're not applying doctrine. They are as in the spiritual realm as if they are dead. They can produce no divine good. They are ignorant. They are part of the problem, not part of the solution. And Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk. Not as unwise but as unwise men, uh, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. We have to be careful how we walk. That means we have to be careful with regards to the decisions that we make. Let me give you just a couple of practical applications because I get these type of questions all the time. I've had people come to me and said, I have some friends that are getting married and they're going to get married in a Catholic church. Should I attend that or not? And I say, of course. There's nothing wrong with marriage. It's a divine institution. What church it is in is really of no consequence. However, most weddings that take place in Catholic churches have the Mass. And you do not want to take Mass. You don't want to take communion in any Catholic church or any Lutheran church you might think that you're going doing the same thing that you do here, but it is totally different. It is an abomination and it's blasphemous because they think that, that that cup and that bread is actually the body and the blood of Jesus Christ and you have to ingest these in order to have your sins forgiven. It's called the sacrifice of the man. But if you don't take the Mass and you're going to a wedding at a Catholic church, I don't see anything wrong with it. However, I would say, and I've had people disagree with me on this, but I still think that they're wrong. If you are invited to go to a christening, I would. if someone asked me, is it okay to go to a christening, I would say I would not do it. Because if you go to a wedding, even if it's at a Catholic church, there's nothing biblically wrong about going to a wedding. It's the right, right thing to do. It, and it's for both believers and unbelievers. It's a divine institution. But if you go to a christening, a christening is baptizing a baby. Um, even if you say, I'm just going there uh, just so that I won't make my friends or my family members angry, Uh, I, I don't really believe in it, but I don't see any harm in going there. Well, if you ever were approached by someone and they thought that you had to be baptized in order to be saved and you tried to argue against that, they said, yeah, but you were at the christening. See, they identify your presence there with you thinking that this is a legitimate function. So we have to use discernment. It's the same thing with the day of prayer. Nothing wrong with a day of prayer. Totally constitutional. I'll explain that to you. But you have to do a right thing in the right way. You have to use discernment. If you're going to go there and there are all these uh, people that are way off base theologically, even with regards to the gospel, you don't want to be identified with those people because it's going to hurt your testimony. It's going to hurt you standing for truth someday. And the Bible tells us, don't. Do it. One more verse. Romans. No, two more verses. Romans 16, verses 17 through 19. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eyes on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. What does that have to do with going to a function where there are unbelievers there? It's never worth it to go to a function if you have to actually compromise your doctrine to do so. It says, turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. The word It doesn't mean that they're big eaters there. I hope you all understand that. Uh, appetite is one of the words that is translated for the emotions. Usually it's blognon, or it could be colia, These are body parts uh, that the the Greeks had no vocabulary for emotions, so they would say a a body part. This is probably colia. It's probably talking about the stomach. It's talking about their emotions. So, (coughs) for such men are not slaves of the Lord Christ, but of their own, you could say, emotions there. Very emotional about this. And by smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting for... The report of your obedience has reached to all, therefore I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And that takes discernment. Here's the last one, Jude chapter 1, verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing That you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For some people, contending earnestly for the faith is like waving a a red flag in front of a bull. They love to do it, they love to contend. They would climb a tree to argue when they could stand on the ground and just be civil. Uh, They're looking for excuses to contend with people, and that is not the kind of contention that this is talking about. The contention that you have to contend for it is that there are so many false gospels, false teachers, there's so many people that are way off base when it comes to doctrine that we can't we, we don't have to go around picking fights with people, that's not what it's saying. But don't back away either. And, and we're going to get into the right way to stand firm for the faith and the wrong way to stand firm for the faith, probably even tonight. But contending for the faith is what a lot of believers will shy away from because and I don't like to argue. Well, we're not talking about arguing. The Bible says, "Come, let us reason together." And it's not that you're trying to lord it over anyone. And I'll say it over and over and over again. If you ask questions, it's not contending. You're trying to find out what someone believes, why they believe it, and as far as they're concerned, they might see you as a possible proselyte. Maybe they can woo you over to their side. All you're doing is asking questions. If they have a different take on how to get to heaven, don't you want to know what it is? Rather than just firing away and giving them everything in your arsenal as far as the gospel is concerned... And after about a half a minute, they've tuned out. They're not even listening to you. How about asking them, well, what do you think? And they'll say, blah, 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 whatever. they Oh, okay, well, where do you get that idea? Where does that come from? Oh, well, it's somewhere in the Bible. Oh, really? Where in the Bible? And already, most of the time, they're backtracking. They're on their heels because they make up all this stuff. They don't know anything. Most of them don't. And if they do, fine. Let them go to the Scriptures. But the reason why most Christians won't do that is it's much easier to spill your guts about everything you know about a particular doctrine and think, well, I did my job, now I'm gone. That way you don't have to answer questions. That way you don't have to have any particular precision in answering questions. It doesn't take that much knowledge just to spill out everything you know about any particular given doctrine. But if you're going to be able to ask questions and you don't know where they're going to lead, that's a little bit scary, isn't it? But that's why we have to be prepared. We have to be ready. Whether it winds up talking about tongues, whether it talks about uh, abortion, whether it's talking about the emerging church, whether it's talking about baptism, whether it's talking about um, the rapture, There's a whole host of things that we should be able to discuss on a level that most people cannot. That's why we're here. That's why we're being prepared. It's not just so that we can fill our homes up with with notes, class notes, or to go around and think, boy, I'm a spiritual giant. I hardly ever miss. We have to be practical about it. And the person that asks questions is the one that's going to really penetrate into the soul of the people that they are addressing because it makes people think. If you're just going on and on about uh, some particular doctrine and they're not interested in it, they'll tune out. And when you're done and you don't even know if they've accepted it, most of the time believers will will start uh, getting on their Soapbox about a particular issue and they don't even know what the other person believes. They might not even be scratching where that person itches. A lot of times it's not. I'm not fussing. I'm afraid somebody might think I'm fussing. I'm not fussing. I'm just trying to tell you that we are in an ocean of lies, deception, false doctrines and every day we probably have an opportunity somewhere along the line to stand and contend for the faith. And we don't do it by arguing. We simply do it by finding out what someone believes and why do you believe it? What's so hard about that? And when you do that, when you ask a person what they believe, already they're off guard because hardly anybody is approached that way today. When was the last time someone asked you what you believe? And then when they spout out something that sounds good that they probably made up out of thin air, and you ask them, where did you get that idea? Then they're shocked again. What are, the, what are they going to do now? Nobody's ever asked them, why do I believe something? What is it based on? And if it's not the Bible, then what is that? It's just somebody else's opinion. Okay, let's go ahead. I don't know. I don't know what his motives are. I'm not going to question whether it's political or not. I do know this. It was a couple of weeks ago that he was in New York. New York had just passed a law that made it uh, legal for uh, same-sex marriages. Two homosexuals can marry or two lesbians can marry. And they asked him what he thought about it. And he said he thought it was great because it shows that it's part of the state's rights. And it, uh, you can understand, well, the states should have the right to um, address these type issues. But just because it's a state right doesn't mean that you're going to toss away your doctrine in the Bible just because it has something that is, is correct with regards to uh, the government as far as that's concerned. Um, I know that some people already forgot about it. It wasn't, I think it was a year or so ago. That he was going to force a HPV shot on teenage girls, and without parental consent. I mean, this is, um, and and what that has to do with his theological stance, I don't know. But I think he made a bad decision with not researching who was who was throwing this, uh, or who was um, was originating this day of prayer. That's why we have to be very careful who we associate with. I have to be very careful who stands behind this pulpit because whoever stands behind this pulpit is really identifying with Country Bible Church. And if somebody comes up, I'm not going to have anyone come behind this pulpit and start teaching a false doctrine. Uh, I do the best I can to keep that from occurring. But if it ever does, that person will never be back behind it again so we have to use this discernment and whether he's a believer or not I don't know but I do know even if he is he he, he made a mistake just like Joel Rosenberg made a mistake I'm not saying these are bad people I'm saying that they misjudged in doing something that they thought was good but it was not good because of the scriptures that I give you when you have a Something an, an, an event like this, and it's organized and funded by people who do not uphold to sound doctrine. I won 't have any part of it, and I don 't think anyone should. Okay, let's get into our review of um, Second Thessalonians. Let's see where we left off here. Boy, when I went back and started looking at this review, we covered a lot of things. That's why we're doing the review to help reinforce these uh, principles in your in your minds. This is where we're going. To, verse 13 of Second Thessalonians chapter, we're in two, aren't we? Chapter two. Yeah, we're going to start with two thirteen. I don't have a scripture uh, for the screen there, so we'll just do it the old-fashioned way. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse seventeen. Well it must be let's see what where are we here? It's not verse teen. Yeah. Is that where we ended? I thought we got down into uh, diluting influence. Yeah, we got into the deluding influence, and I didn't do. I don't do every verse. No, I, I was looking at uh, it's thirteen. Okay, um, I said seventeen, but I don't know why I got seventeen. It's thirteen. Verse thirteen says, "But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved." by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Now, I took this opportunity when I was teaching this to, again, hone our uh, discernment with regards to the different types of sanctification, mainly the positional sanctification and the experiential sanctification. Sometimes the A positional sanctification is called the lawful sanctification. Every believer is permanently set apart to God at the moment he believes in Jesus Christ. And it's a judicial issue. It is a permanent positional issue. Every believer is sanctified in a positional sense when they believe in Jesus Christ. As opposed to the experiential sanctification... Some believers grow in grace and knowledge and are set apart by God for special rewards and blessings. And, of course, that doesn't happen to all believers, and it is an experience in time. Let's look at the difference in, in these. And it is critical, absolutely critical, that you know how to determine what... The scriptures are saying and whether to identify whether something is positional or experiential i think it is as important to understand and make the distinctions with this as it is to make the distinctions with regards to dispensations you can get just as lost if you can't make this distinctions as you can if you don't make the dispensational distinctions first of all The positional in time, it just takes a moment. For the experiential, it takes a lifetime. A lot of believers will believe in Jesus Christ maybe when they're 12, 13 years old, maybe when they're young, and they might uh, go for a decade, two decades, before they finally start to understand what life is all about. Then they get cracking with regards to being experientially sanctified. And so I don't know how long it may take, but it takes a lifetime. You should, you should recognize this distinction shortly after you are a believer, and then you have to endure to the entire end of your life to be experientially sanctified. But it's worth it. That's the, that's the big news. Of course, the positional is for all believers. The experiential is just for some. I might say very few. Very few believers can adroitly handle the Word of God. They mumble and fumble around. Uh, They really don't know much about defending the faith. The condition to be positionally sanctified, of course, is faith in Christ and the qualification or the condition for experiential sanctification is spiritual maturity. And I'm talking about growing in grace and knowledge. That's why we're left here. How can we glorify God if we are spiritually ignorant? And we dodge every time there's an opportunity for us to say something about Jesus Christ, to give the gospel, or someone is floundering, or someone promotes some type of false doctrine, and we just recess recess, uh, back into the shadows because we don't want to be contentious and we don't think about what Jude said, that we need to contend earnestly for the faith. Of course, the volition is always an issue. It's negative after salvation. See, you can be positive when you believe the gospel. You have to be positive then. But for some believers, that might be the only time they're positive in their whole life. They believe the gospel, then they get some kind of uh, false doctrine, and they think from then on they have to work in order to maintain their salvation. And what is all that work? It's nothing. It's going to be burned up. And they are negative towards the truth. The experiential believers that are sanctified are positive to doctrine. You know, you can't be positive to doctrine and not grow in grace and knowledge. You understand what I'm talking about? They're axiomatic. If you're positive towards doctrine, you're going to grow in grace and knowledge. If you're not, you're not going to grow. And if you are, growing in grace and knowledge it's because you have positive volition. And that's the whole issue in the angelic conflict. God is demonstrating to Satan that Just because he gave Satan free will doesn't mean that Satan can turn around and blame God and say, it's your fault. Well, yes, I. Satan may say, yes, I formed a conspiracy against you, but don't blame me. You're the one that gave me volition. That's essentially Satan's argument. And every time you have believers that accept the free gift offer of grace... Salvation from Jesus Christ, it demonstrates to Satan that just because God gives you free will free will does not mean that you're automatically going to use it against what God has offered. And it puts another nail in the coffin of Satan every time a believer believes in Jesus Christ. And he hates, he detests believers who are being experientially sanctified because that's even further proof that he doesn't have a leg to stand on and he deserves the punishment he's going to get. That's the big issue in life is volition. And of course, with regards to heaven, every believer is going to have it, heaven, but very few are going to inherit it. And there's a difference. Very few believers are going to have inheriting rights. There are going to be believers that are shocked there may be been a lot of believers that went to this uh, day of prayer thinking, God is going to give me some points on this one. And they think that they're doing good. They think they're doing right. They have a zeal, but it's not according to knowledge. And all of that is just going to be burned up, and they're not going to inherit. They will be in heaven, but they're going to miss out on a lot of things. Of course, rewards. There's no rewards for a person who only has... The positional type, and there will be rewards for those who use their time wisely and are experientially sanctified. With regards to status, a baby, a baby believer, once you believe in Jesus Christ and you never grow above that, you still have positional sanctification. What we want to do is get to adulthood. How long did it take you to go from being a baby to a physically and mentally adult individual? took a lot of years, didn't it? And I'm I'm amazed in my own life. I look back and I think of things that I'm just learning today. Not necessarily this day, but I'm talking about in the time frame. I'm a senior citizen now. And I'm amazed. Why did it take me this long? I mean... (laughs) Surely I should have learned this three decades ago. And, of course, some people never learn it. With regards to re- relationship, people who only have positional type are actually the enemy of God. See, this, this is the, the thing about what Christ did that I, I love about Him. One of the things I love about Him, you cannot sit on a fence There's no neutral ground in this battle. Christ said, "You either for me or you're against me." And the Bible calls believers that are not positive, that are ignorant, that are deceived, their casualties in the angelic conflict. They call them uh, the Bible calls them antichrists. They're the enemy. But the enemy still has God's righteousness. They still have His. Eternal life and so forth. Where we want to get to is to have the relationship to be a friend rather than an enemy. You know who it is that was designated a friend of God? Abraham. Boy, what a high accolade that is to be called a friend of God. Classification this is where I've had people leave this church. I actually had one person tell me, well, after they left the church, well, I take it back, but I, they didn't tell me. I got it through the scuttlebutt that the reason they left is that they got tired of me, of me calling people losers. And I thought, well, <laughs> uh, sorry about that, but uh, there, this is this is what a lot of Christians shy away. From, they do not like anyone to say that you can be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and be a loser. And I'm here to say most believers in Jesus Christ are big-time losers. They are pathetic. And the only reason we are not is because of God's grace. But they're losers because of their own volition they choose not to grow they choose to spend their time elsewhere when bible class or church is going on they don't open their bibles they don't listen to a tape they don't go to the internet they don't do anything and then they are incensed when someone says that there are believers who are losers let me tell you one thing they'll find out one day that they're losers the judgment seat of Christ is going to no doubt very vividly show them what type of losers they were. I don't want to be a loser. Do you? I was fortunate when I was in sports all my life. We were always on a winning team. I mean, everywhere I went, and it's not because of me. I mean, football has 11 players on the field. But I'm just saying I had good. I was fortunate to have good coaches, good support. Everything was good, and we're winners. Listen, I'm not easy to live with if I'm on a, something losing. I don't. I'm a good winner. I'm a very poor loser. Carrie can testify to that. And I don't like to be wrong either. But you know. When you're wrong, you have to acknowledge that. I mean, that's, what, that's one of the things we have to do. I think sometimes the people that are the most dogmatic and speak the loudest about their beliefs are really afraid. They're trying to convince themselves that they're really right. When if you have no qualms about it, that you are humble and you really want to know the truth, and someone starts to prove you wrong, rather than getting all in a dither about it, they're doing you a favor. If you have embraced some kind of a doctrine that is off base and someone points that out to you, they've done you a favor. Why argue about it? Why try to insult them? That's the type of attitude we should have. And some of us have different personalities. But I think we all are this way. When you're talking to someone and you have a disagreement on a doctrine or something, you say, well, you're just wrong. What does that do? That's like waving a big red flag in front of a bull say, charge. They don't like that. Why do it? Why put them on the other side of the table? You know what they do? Mentally, they can, okay, this is a contest. And I'm not going to listen to them while they're talking, trying to give me information. I'm going to be thinking about what I'm going to say next to rebut what they're saying. They're not listening. Verse 15. See, we're skipping some verses. We went from verse 13 to verse 15. So then, brethren, look at that. You should have this underlined in your Bible. Stand firm and hold to the tradition which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Do you know that we spent about, I don't know, what was it, four weeks on this verse? At least two major doctrines came out of this verse. Do you all remember that? You're looking at me like you don't remember this. First of all, let's look at the stand firm. We are required to stand firm. Look, look at uh, verse fifteen. So, brethren, stand firm. That's the that's the text in Second Thessalonians, First Corinthians sixteen thirteen. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith. Both on be on the alert and stand firth, f- uh, stand firm, are present active imperatives. Keep on standing firm, and it, these are all imperatives. In fact, I didn't put it in every one of these. But most of them are imperatives. You're commanded to stand firm. And when you stand firm, you're going to have people saying, oh, well, you just are contentious. When you say, okay, let's go to the Bible, see what the Bible says. Do you know how many people will actually stick with you and start looking up Scriptures when you say something like that? Do you ever get out and do these things? Do you ever talk to someone and they say, well, you know, uh, Moses uh, had a iPod. No, I'm just throwing this at you. something silly. I mean, just something that you know is wrong. And you say, really? Moses had an iPod? Well, where do you see that in the Bible? Can you show me? Do you ever ask people to show you in the Bible? How many times do they do that? How many times can they go to a verse when you say, Well, let's look at what God says? Do you ever have any experience doing that? I can't rem- I would say probably at least 75% of the time when you say, well, let's, where does it say that in the Bible? Let's go to the Bible. You know what they do? Oh, well, I, I know it's in there somewhere. You ever heard that before? Staying firm. Philippians 1, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I've got uh, some morphology there. Let's see what that is. As a member of the royal family of God, that's what that's talking about. So whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will bear I will hear of you that you are standing firm, present tense, in one spirit, unity of and cooperation with one mind. That's important. All of us here of are of one mind. Anyone could take us and individually go out in the parking lot and ask us. Fundamental, biblical questions, and we all should come up with the same answer. That's being of the same mind, especially when it comes to the gospel. We understand it's faith alone and Christ alone. With one mind, striving together, we should strive with one another and not against one another for the faith of the gospel, the body of truth emphasizing grace. Romans eleven twenty, But you stand firm. This is a perfect act of indicative. When you stand firm, it has ongoing results. 2 Corinthians 1, 24. For in your faith you are standing firm. 2 Corinthians 1, uh, 23 and 24. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. Well, I... Uh, I I just did twenty-four. Let me. Does anybody have? Uh, oh, okay. I see what I did. Uh, verse twenty. I think I did twenty-three first. You got the, the verse there wrong. But our for in, for in your faith you are standing firm. But our workers. I don't know what that is. I, I might have that. anybody look up uh, somebody look up Second Corinthians one twenty-three, and tell me if that's correct. Okay, uh, how about somebody looking up 1 Corinthians 123? 1. I wonder if I had this problem when I taught it. 1 Corinthians 123. Okay, so it's not 2 Corinthians 123, it's not 1 Corinthians 123. Okay. There's a verse <laughs> it's somewhere in the Bible. <laughs> oh boy, did I get caught in that That's one! Uh, I'll tell you what—I will find it. What? I know. Then I have Second Corinthians one twenty-three. That's obviously uh, uh, wrong. Well, she just read Second Corinthians one twenty-four, and it didn't sound anything like that. All right. What is what? what somebody read one twenty four. Okay, that's twenty four. Yeah. Okay. But uh, the whole thing is. Did you say the first part was for in your faith you are standing firm? So the whole thing is twenty four. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what I'm going to do. We're going to move on and I will sort this thing out and I'll get back to you. See, that's what you do when you're talking to someone and they ask you a question and you don't have a clue for the answer. Better than making something up, it's better to say, you know, I don't know, but I'll find out and I'll get back with you. I don't know what went on here, but I'll find out and get back to you, okay? Colossians 4.12. I don't know what's funny. I didn't go there. I'm not going there. I'm moving on. <laughs> we already got that up there. Here's first Corinthians 16:13 right up here. I already did that one. And now I'm down here and I got in the in the mud down here in second Corinthians 124 whatever that is. Um So but we're moving on now. Do you see what I'm trying to do? Do you see how all these are in red, standing firm? I don't even think I'd have to read any more. Just look up here. Do you see this? All this red, are command, stand firm, stand, you see all that? That's the point I'm trying to get across to you. We are commanded over and over and over again in the Bible to stand firm. And you cannot stand firm unless you have knowledge. You cannot be a good and faithful servant and be a spiritual ignoramus, which most believers are. Now, we're moving on. No believer can stand firm for the grace of God without standing firm for the gospel. Now, I told you we were going to go into the right way and the wrong way to stand firm. Every day... We are under God's direct commands to stand firm for His Word. And back to that day of prayer again, I think that, for instance, Brandon House and uh, Dr. Robbie Dean and a number of other theologians and pastors that I know were doing the right thing. They stood firm and did not take part in that day of prayer. And they, like myself, told their congregations. Why? That is standing firm. And we need to be able to stand firm on whatever issue it is. It's not that you're a spiritual know-it-all, but who else is going to enlighten the masses if it's not believers who are standing firm? And how many believers are able to do that? Out of all the people that you know, how many would you say percentage-wise are capable of standing firm for the faith. I, I would imagine that hardly anyone here could say, and I'm excluding this our own church family, excluding our own church family. I doubt that there's anybody here that could say that, oh, any percent-wise, that any of them would be over 10%. I doubt that anybody, in other words, 90, at least 90% of the people that you know could not stand firm for the faith. And I'm talking about believers. Would you agree to that? And those who do try to stand firm for the faith, they do it the wrong way. It's important that we do the right thing in a right way. Because if you do the right thing in a wrong way, what is it? It's wrong, isn't it? I don't care if it's the right thing. You do it in the wrong way. It's wrong. It, it's, even children have to learn this. Have you ever seen a child go and take a toy from another child and uh, just, just take it away from him? And you say, no, no, you don't do that. Now, you tell, that, that, uh, you tell Johnny over there that you're sorry for that. And he says, I'm sorry. What is that? That's doing the right thing in the wrong way, isn't it? Don't you start teaching them even right then? Now, that doesn't mean a thing. Now, that that shows that you're not sorry. Maybe I need to give you a little enforced humility. Maybe you need to stand in the corner for a half an hour and see then if you might be sorry for taking it. We teach that very early on, that it's important to do the right thing in the right way. How about if you do the wrong thing in the right way? Is that What is that? Still wrong, isn't it? life is hard, isn't it? Huh? Not only do we have to do the right thing, we have to do it the right way. And how can you know if you're doing it the right way if you don't have doctrine circulating in your stream of consciousness? It's just a guess. You know how most people make decisions whether to do something, uh, trying to do the right thing the right way? You know how most people decide? From their splogna and their kolia, their emotions. It's all about feeling. And when someone is angry, when someone is spiteful, do you think they're going to be able to do the right thing in the right way? No, They're going to be doing the wrong thing in the wrong way. Is there—is there a way to do the wrong thing in the wrong way? <laughs> Maybe they're doing the wrong thing in the right way. The right way would... Uh, I don't know. I won't get into that. <laughs> Too late in the message here. In fact, it's, I think we're going to shut down because... This is a good place. This is, see, the wrong way to stand firm. We need some practical applications when we are on the front lines and we're talking to people about Jesus Christ. We're talking to them about any given subject. We need to make sure that we don't fall into all the pitfalls that are there. You already see the first one. Arguing with unbelievers over non-essentials. And the people do it, and it's easy to do because that's what the the unbelievers will try to drag you into that. You ever talked to a Jehovah Witness before? How have you not? Is my question. How do you dodge them? They're everywhere. They'll seek you out. You go get under the bed and they'll knock on that door. And they're going to try to make non-essentials the issue. They come, I, you know. I live way out in the boonies, and they come out and find me. The first thing they want to do is give me some kind of little deal for some kind of little track. They said it's twenty-five cents. I said, I will tell you what, I got a track I'll give you for free. Oh, well, we can't take that. Said, this wasn't written by anyone. This was written for by me for this very exact situation. And the booklet is in there. It's called The Truth About What Really Matters. And it was designed to open the eyes of Jehovah's Witnesses, specifically. You'll not see heaven mentioned in there because if you mention heaven, they go off on a big toot about there's no heaven and all this. So I said, I will, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll even make a deal. I'll go out, I will do something that I won't normally do. I'll pay you a quarter for your track and I'll give you mine for free. But I won't take your track if you won't take mine. And they said, well, we can't do that. Then I said, I have nothing more to say to you. If you don't even want to be open enough to where you're going to listen to something that I wrote for this specific occasion and it's free, and I'll even take your your track and I promise that I will read it and I'll pay you a quarter for it. And you're not even going to go for a deal like that. You're not going to listen to any other deals that I have either. And I said... I didn't say good day to them. I just said, there's the gate. Was I being unfair? Uh, no. We have, again, this is discernment. You know why they won't take anything from you? It's, it's a hard to fast rule. Now, they always come in twos. Uh, maybe very unlikely, but maybe you'll just one will come sometimes. But most of the time it's two or more. Because every time I've started, they, they start talking to me and I start, making some, I start penetrating with truth, the other one's got the other one by the arm dragging them out the door. And if they really start listening to you and you really start making some headway, that other one is going to drag them out. That's why they're there. They, oh, we do it for safety. I've even seen husband and wife. I had a wife literally take her husband by the arm and drag him out of my garden. It's time to go, Henry. That's the one where I was wearing the T-shirt with the Miller beer on it. <laughs> I was out in my garden, and I, my father-in-law found all these shirts, and I just take whichever one's on top. I never look what's on there. And I had a Miller Light beer shirt on, and I was in my garden watering, and here they come. It was a man and his wife, and he came up, and they started saying, uh, Well, it wasn't about the situation in the world. and no, I knew who they were. I said, well, Why don't we just cut the chase? What does it take to be saved? Oh, well, you got to believe in Jesus Christ. Oh, good. Is that all? Remember? Is that all? Questions? Oh, no. Uh, you have to be a good person. You've got to do a little bit of all this. I said, Really? Where is that? And said, Oh, well, you can lose your salvation. I said, one verse. There's, that's a thick book right there. Show me one verse. And I'll even go to your New World Translation. Show me in there. Anything. Anyway, it wasn't in a minute or two. They asked me, they said, are you a pastor? I said, yes. And boy, she was <laughs> like this. And um, anyway, they kept looking down at my, you know, and I didn't know what. They kept looking down. I, I didn't know what it was. And they were really confused. Here, way out in the sticks, outside of Greenvine, Texas, in a garden, a guy wearing a beer t-shirt, and they're having all kind of difficulty. And it wasn't until after they left that I thought, what is it? And I thought, I just had a big hoot there. I just got... That really, I'm sure, uh, was a confusing day for them. But you never know. You have to always be prepared, don't we, to... Uh, gives a reason for the hope that is in us to anyone who comes by at any time. The best way to do that is ask questions. You see, all I did was ask questions. I never preached to them. I never... It, but the questions that I asked were so penetrating, evidently nobody's out there asking questions. So, anyway, we'll pick this up next time and we'll start with the, right, the, the, the wrong way to stand firm than the right way. Let's close. Father, thank you for this time you've given us that we can see more clearly what our mission is. And that is to stand firm for the faith. To be able to distinguish, it's very important for us to understand the difference between positional sanctification and experiential sanctification. And all the other distinctions that are in the Bible, and this doesn't happen overnight, it's one thing to know it, it's another thing to articulate it, and then even another thing to be able to be on the front lines when there's an, a believer that is confused or an unbeliever, the whole, their whole destiny is at stake. We pray that you will help us to be sharp, to continue to learn and grow, so that we can serve you in a way that will glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.